You're now listening to Biddle Crypto with your host Tarun. This podcast brings conversations from crypto founders, researchers and creators in the US to 700 plus million internet users in India and other emerging pro crypto nations. Find out who are some of the most impactful US based crypto startups and what are they building. Just a disclaimer Talks here are not to be taken as financial advice of any sort. Before I introduce my guest for today, I want to thank Zencaster for sponsoring this episode. Zencaster is a perfect solution that helps record your remote interviews in studio quality with just a few clicks. What's the secret you ask? Well, Zencaster records each voice locally with each user. every time in a 16 bit lossless wav format so you get the best possible audio to work with i myself use zencaster for this remote interview session and the voice was super clear even though the guest was located miles away go check them out at zencaster.com they are also offering unlimited guests and recording time as a limited time offer Also a shout out to Rob Braxman the real internet privacy guy he is like a guru in online privacy at least for me personally he has you know all the tips and tricks on how to maintain your online privacy also has tons of gadgets to go with that and honestly his talks were an eye opener for me personally and it's not that he needs me to promote him because he already has like 100,000 subscribers but i just would like to mention him here listen to him talk on his youtube channel rob braxman tech or you can also check him out on his website at brax.me my guest today is sanjum kirk he's a top crypto researcher at the university of california berkeley He obtained his PhD from University of California Los Angeles in 2013 and his undergraduate degree from IIT Delhi in 2008. Sanjum is a huge deal among crypto researchers. He has been featured on Forbes 30 under 30 for his pioneering research on ways to create unhackable software. His work has enabled a range of new cybersecurity applications many of which were previously considered impossible. Quantum Magazine referred to Dr. Sanjum's work as a watershed moment for crypto. He has also won numerous awards and honors all of which I will run out of time to mention here. He's a prolific speaker and has several publications to his name. Most of all he's a fun person to talk to. Following is my conversation with him recorded November 2020. Hi everyone, uh, thanks Tarun for you already mentioned uh, we're from the same city Patiala and for me personally uh I guess growing up in Patiala was was fun. You said it's a small town certainly by the the Indian standard one could call it a small town. Maybe not by the American standard but certainly Indian standards. I guess growing up, I was always uh, interested in uh, mathematics and, and sciences. Actually, 
quite especially physics. And I was interested in technology. I guess what fascinated me was that I just wanted to understand how things work. And it was, it was challenging because, you know, you would see technology coming about at that time. We didn't necessarily grow up with cell phones, but we did start to see them as they were coming out. So it was very interesting. And I was always amazed that these things work. And I wanted to just understand that. And, and this is what kind of excited me and kind of led to a, a career or, or a desire to pursue engineering. And, and, you know, it might seem natural, but it was kind of an unnatural choice for me. And, and part of the reason was everybody in my family, uh, my, my, both my parents, uh, my sister, not, they're all doctors. So, and, and this is not just true about the immediate family members, but also several of the extended family members were, you know, they, they were involved in the profession. So it was kind of expected or, or, or that was the, the standard path to pursue. I, I guess maybe something similar was your, in your case as well. Yes. You, you felt that way. Uh, but it was for me, and, and it was a little bit of a tough choice in trying to take down a, on a path that was different from what was clearly understood by people in the family and so on. But I think something that did help me overcome that was the fact that I just uh, didn't like biology, or maybe I should say I wasn't very good at it. And so my folks thought that maybe I wouldn't do well at it, so they were okay with the fact that I didn't want it. And that was the big thing. Uh, since uh, folks back home didn't understand, you know, they started to lose touch of what I was doing quite early. And, and it kind of, you know, uh, allowed me in, in some sense to have this kind of a weird sense of freedom where I kept doing whatever I liked and, and so on. And, and since, you know, no one understood. And, you know, I try to explain to them now sometimes what I do. And I think they do understand encryption a little bit. Uh, or at least that's what I, I get, uh, and I'm happy about that. But that sort of kind of allowed me to sort of go in, in that space, and it kind of was uh, gave me a lot of sort of a sense of doing whatever I wanted to, and that was exciting. You know, once I started doing, you know, in my uh, early on, and you know, decided I would pursue engineering, I was more, I leaned more towards physics because that's something I could understand. But for my undergrad, I ended up doing uh, computer science. And I was very interested in early on, very interested in breaking uh, computer systems, trying to find vulnerabilities and, and see the exploits and so on. But I sort of got interested in, in fixing things. And that's when I got introduced to cryptography. And this is back in 2007. So that's when I started working in the field. I was fascinated and it's basically been the same fascination all throughout since 2007. So uh, my bachelor's thesis was in cryptography and I've been doing crypto since then. So this is, uh, this has been a fun journey. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Sanjam. And yeah, I do agree, you know, town like Patiala from where we uh, grew up and you know, came to this country, you know, it's a, it's a sleepy little town, yet it's, you know, full of creative ideas, full of people who are academically inclined. It sort of forms like a perfect environment for like, you know, academic uh, probing and researching and being more in, inquisitive. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Certainly in that sense, right? Uh, there are so many 
pretty good educational institutions there, right? So the, the, the medical college and then the topper and the state college, right? So the, the, these are within Punjab, I guess, if one was to pick a place which had the best culture, perhaps, uh, for education, it would be Patel. So we uh, caught up a little bit about your past. I want to know what you're most currently doing at present in Berkeley. Yeah, so... Um, uh, crypto is sort of a, a big field and there's sort of a lot going on. And I'll, I'll give you a few examples of the things that I and some of my colleagues here have been, you know, also with my students and that we've been working on. So one problem that's, uh, I've been working on for some, for a larger part of this, uh, this past decade is what's called software obfuscation. The problem is that, you know, you have a computer program. It could be in whatever programming language that you like. And you would like to take this program and somehow obfuscate it. And what I mean by that is that you would like to somehow uh, garble or encrypt this program so that someone who has access to even the source code of the program cannot figure out how the program works. Uh, yet they can still continue to execute this program on their computer just as they could have executed the ungarbled or the unencrypted version. Okay. So that's sort of a very natural uh, task. And this is something that is quite widely used in the world, in, in real world, uh, but without the sort of provable or, or, or well understood uh, security guarantees. And, and typically these systems end up getting broken. So if you go online, you can buy one of these systems, but typically proprietary, not open source, people don't understand how they work. And, and they typically do end up getting broken. Back in, uh, uh, I guess, 2012, 2013, um, we showed a, sort of a new way of realizing such an obfuscation system, uh, which was provably secure. Provably secure based on certain computational assumptions, you know, certain new kind of mathematics that we developed at that time. Although, you know, this was sort of really cool, the mathematics was something somewhat a little shaky at that at that time, we, you know, we didn't have as much confidence in it. And some of the things were broken. Just over the last one year, we've seen some really cool developments in basing it on uh, solid ground or, or fairly solid ground, uh, where, you know, we feel very confident of the, about the security of these systems. And, and that's very exciting. So that's sort of one thing that I've been working on for the last six, seven years. And, you know, as seen significant advances. You know, one caveat that this technology is it's quite a bit in the future in the sense that these things are quite inefficient. So you couldn't just take them and, and you know, say that, look, I want to uh, obfuscate this program or something and, and go ahead and use it. The obfuscated programs would end up being very large. Things would be very slow. So you can't really use them at the moment. But this is just a theoretical proof of concept that something like this is even possible which was quite exciting in the field. And I think quite remarkably, it has changed how cryptographers think. So if previously someone said, you know, here's something I would like to do, can crypto or cryptography do it? It was more of an art in, in answering that question. Can we do that? And what obfuscation has done is, is turned it into a bit of a science where you ask the question and we turn the obfuscation crank and out comes the solution. Yes, we can do it or we cannot do it. Actually doing it efficiently, making it practical is still far ahead in many applications, but just doing, you know, whether it's even possible, 
Another thing that uh, I, I really love and have been working on uh, for more than the last 10 years is something called multi-party computation. And for your viewers, if they're familiar with zero-knowledge proofs, it's sort of a, a generalization of that. So multi-party computation allows two or more parties have private input. So think of the case that, let's say, um, we wanted to figure out the, who's older, even though I know in our case, who's older. But let's say I wanted to figure that out uh, between the two of us. And I don't want to tell me tell you my age and you didn't want to tell me your age. And we wanted to do, uh, do this task while being on this podcast. So we want to figure out who's older and uh, we want to do this while we're talking on this podcast. And we want it to be secure in such a way that even the listeners of this podcast will not be able to tell our ages. You won't be able to tell my age, but everyone, including the listeners, will know who among us is older. And that's something that multi-party computation allows us to do uh, securely. Um, this is something that people developed a few decades back uh, in the early or the mid eighties. Um, and it's starting to become practical now. There are implementations, there are startups that are using this. So there are products in the market that you could buy to implement some multi-party computation protocols. And that's exciting. And, and even in this, there are many theoretical questions that are open and interesting and, and we've been trying to chip along and, and make progress on, on some of these questions in this domain. So that's another topic uh, that I've been really interested in. I want to just touch upon a thing that I've just recently started to get interested in. And I'm, I think this is going to be quite uh, important and I'm really excited about this direction. It stems from the GDPRs, the European privacy regulation that came about. And then there's the California regulation, CCPA. Uh, and if you've still not voted this, an updated version of it that's on the ballot in California tomorrow, uh, CPRA, if you're voting for it. So these are new privacy regulations and they introduce new requirements on businesses to follow in how they handle uh, user data. Something that I've been working on recently has been this uh, right to be forgotten aspect of uh, these regulations. Um, there's been quite a significant amount of discussion on when is it okay for someone to request uh, for data to be deleted. So for example, you know, I have a mortgage on my house. I would like to go to the bank and tell them, please forget everything about me. But you know, that's not something that's going to fly as you might expect. That's not okay to delete. But what if I've already paid off my mortgage? Can I go to the bank and uh, request that my data be deleted? We're not trying to answer when it's okay to delete the data, but we're trying to understand what it means what are the requirements that are placed on a business to enforce deletion once it's been decided that a deletion is legitimate? So we've been trying to understand that and, and, and that space has been, even the regulation seemed quite unclear about what's required in such circumstances. So we've been trying to understand that and, and study that space. I am also a California resident, so I do plan to vote tomorrow. What would constitute like a, a total deletion of somebody's, say, private records in terms of, say, social media records? Or as you mentioned, like, uh, you know, once the mortgage is paid, you know, the banks have no, there's no point in have them having, although it benefits, you know, organizations to having additional data around. But, you know, for me as a user, like what would be that uh, sort of, 
you know, line drawn as to, hey, now I have a complete, there's no records in any sort of system. Is there some sort of mechanisms that I guess you and your team are developing around that? And then, you know, then the question might be in terms of like, if there is some sort of like retrieval needed in the future, how would that go? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. So actually, that's exactly what we were trying to understand. So both GDPR and CCPA, and that's my understanding, I understand the the technical aspects, not necessarily as much the legal aspects, so just talking from the the technical perspective, based on my reading of the the law, um, is that they're quite unclear on where that line is exactly as you're asking, what happens, what does deletion entail? So in particular, for example, one of the, the texts in, in one, you know, one of these laws uh, stated that, uh, for example, uh, if uh, my data is collected and, and is then processed, then that's okay for the company to still keep. So let's say you're a data provider, uh, you're a data collector or some entity like that. You collect my data uh, and, and you process it. So for example, you learn a machine learning model on it or you do something on it and, and keep it in some processed form. Later on, I come and say, please delete my data. You delete my data, but the law seems to suggest that it's okay for you to preserve the processed versions of it. So for example, it's okay for you to hold the machine learning model that you learned using my data. So that's uh, really problematic because we know that in certain cases, machine learning models could remember the information. So I can give you a very simple example of that. So let's say the census department for, for some, uh, the branch of the census department that's working on, let's say, collecting the, the heights of, uh, or average height of people in the Bay Area. And, you know, they have everybody's height and they compute the average and they, they, they know the average of everyone. Now, let's say I go to them and say, please delete my information. They go, okay, sure, sounds good. And they delete uh, my information. And now they can easily compute the average height of everybody else in the Bay Area, but they also have access to the average height that was previously computed. So given the two average heights, they can compute my height. So even though they deleted information about me, they could still compute the information that I wanted them to delete from the other processed data that they've computed. So this is uh, quite uh, uh, problematic. I'm just giving a simple example, but this could be quite problematic in, in a variety of situations. And the literature is, is filled with such examples. And what we wanted to sort of understand is, can we even draw a line? Can we say that if this is followed, then that's good enough in our view? And that's exactly what we do. So we provide sort of a precise uh, mathematical definition. When has the, the company uh, or data collector complied with the, the deletion? The request goes as if, you know, after the deletion is done, from the company's perspective, things should be such as if I never had submitted the information to them in the first place. That's the, the definition that we state. So in the case of the mortgage company, as you're talking about, if I request that they delete my data because I've made all the payments and I don't owe them any money, then from their perspective, they wouldn't even be able to tell whether I held the mortgage with them later on. And, and that would be the, the, the level of deletion. Um, that technically is possible. Again, whether society wants that, that would have to come by a policy. And that's, again, not my expertise. So from my understanding, uh, some sort of anonymization of the data, like the computed data in a collective would 
perhaps exists in, you know, that say calculated the average height of the population at the time of the compute. But later on, if there's a request that comes along, hey, delete my data on an individual level. Yes, all your uh, references to yourself and anything that, you know, all the identifiers are removed, but the actual compute still remains just because it's a computed result, right? So it's like, you know, yeah. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. And that, yeah, that, that's sort of a really exciting uh, area of research. And, and I expect, just as you all just picked up and your audience probably know about it, I expect multi-party computation to sort of start becoming more and more popular in the coming years. What's the difference between, like, say, encryption and cryptography? You know, encryption is something uh, uh, that's, that's quite fascinating, just the fact that it works. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's great that uh, you asked about it. I guess I would say that the cryptography as such is, is a field of study, right? So it, it's a field of, of developing ways of hiding information or, and as it has broadened, computing on information as it's hidden and, and, and it involves different aspects. What does it even mean to hide something? And cryptography is the field that studies it. Encryption is one uh, of the, you know, it's a tool built by cryptographers which achieves the goal of sort of data confidentiality, which is paramount in every aspect of our life, right? So, so that, that's sort of the, the sense about cryptography and, and encryption. That, that's sort of the difference, right? Cryptography is just a field and encryption is, is specific. Uh, one of the things that people study and, and they have developed in the field. Um, people often confuse cryptography with the, the cryptocurrencies and as they started to be called just crypto, Again, cryptocurrency, like encryption, is one of the things that cryptographers study and, and, and have, and cryptographers have contributed to this space. Trying to answer the second part of your question, which was about what is encryption? Encryption is absolutely paramount in our lives. And this is not just true in a world where we have computers. Encryption is essential. Even if we didn't have any computers, we were not using cell phones, we didn't have that. You know, one clearly starts to understand it when we see that encryption is not being uh, has not been developed uh, now. It's been it's been used in some sense for centuries. For example, maybe you might be amazed to hear that Punjabi, our mother tongue, was partly developed as a language that was supposed to be not understood by other people around. So it was sort of like an encoded language where people could communicate uh, uh, with the with other people in the military at that time so that other people didn't understand that language. So it was sort of a, a form of encryption uh, in the early stages that, you know, our mother tongue. This is anecdotal. I, I, I don't, I haven't evaluated the evidence on it, but this is my understanding. That's a good uh, rabbit hole sort of pointer you have given me now to, to, to research on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you find yeah. an answer, I'd love to know if it's, uh, yeah. Uh, if it's, you know, there's, there's actual, you know, if, if there's clear citations we have mm-hmm. for, for this being a factor, if it's been refuted. So I would love to know that. But yeah, so just expanding on that, right? So in, encryption is sort of very important. And in terms of trying to communicate with someone while other people cannot understand it. And, you know, a very simple example is, let's say you write uh, something on a, for example, um, your tax information on a piece of paper you could keep it in a uh, in a safe in a safe deposit box in a in a bank, 
and you can be assured that nobody has access to it. But let's say you want to send that document to, to IRS as you're filing your tax return. Well, you know, that's great. But if, what if someone gets hold of your mail while it's in the transit? They could open the mail clearly and then they could read your tax returns and that would be it. They would have that information. Encryption would allow you to do is you could encrypt the document in the written form and send it to IRS. And then IRS could decrypt this, this document and read it. That would be a way, even when you're not using any kind of electronic communication, you could still encrypt your message and send it over. The need for encryption becomes even more paramount when we're in the electronic space. For example, when you're sending an email or you're sending a message, because in that space, it becomes even, it becomes much easier for people to snoop on your messages. For example, if you're buying, you're sending your credit card information to Amazon as you're buying uh, the next Halloween sale event, uh, let's say, right? And then, so if you're buying something and, and you're sending your credit card information, somebody might get access to that information while it's on board. So encryption becomes even more relevant and important in this context. And, and, and today we have encryption schemes which have a very high bar, which the requirements and what it means for an encryption scheme to be secure is very high. And, and that's sort of just defining what that high standard is understanding, and then developing methods that actually achieve that standard is what cryptographers uh, would study in developing their encryption scheme. Now, to answer your question on some of the uh, really big breakthrough works uh, in, in cryptography, and then that sort of goes back to, there have been sort of two, or maybe three highlighting works that uh, exist. The first one goes back to 1976, and, and, and I can call maybe crypto is split in a world where we were before 1976 and in a world after 1976. I think it's so remarkable a change. So people were using encryption all the time, right? That, as we talked, even there's some anecdotal statement that even Punjabi was developed as an encryption methodology. But what's very crucial about the kind of encryption schemes that we envisioned or thought about before 1976 was that we had to, let's say I wanted to communicate with you in, in private, then I had to meet with you beforehand in a private room. For example, we had to learn the same language beforehand. And as long as that information, that private information that we shared before we separated and, and, and talked with other people um, had to remain hidden. So you had some secret, I had some secret that we shared with each other in a private room. No one had access to that private that that secret information except you and me. And then we could go out in the world and, and talk to each other. So, for example, if we could have met before this podcast and and shared certain secrets, you you would have that secret. I would have that secret. Now, having access to that secret, what it would allow is is I could say something on this podcast that you could make sense of, but nobody else listening to this podcast. Would. So that's something that's called private key encryption or secret key encryption, where I have a key, you have a key. Uh, it's the same key and, and no one else has access to it. It's a private key. And what happened in, in 1976 is that this idea of an encryption scheme where the two parties who wanted to, to communicate securely didn't have to meet beforehand was proposed. Okay. So this is quite fascinating, right? So I want to send you private messages. But consider the situation where I've never met with you 
in my life before. And this podcast is the only way of, of me communicating with you. We could set up a channel. I could say a few things with you. And suddenly, no one on this podcast will understand what I'm saying. It'll, it'll just be gibberish, but you would understand what I'm saying. And that sort of change in how we thought of encryption came about in 1976 by this sort of really revolutionary paper by Diffie and Hellman, where they introduced this sort of idea of public key cryptography, where we didn't have to meet them beforehand and share a secret with each other. Um, I would just talk to you publicly and we will end up having, I will end up having my own secret. You will have, end up having your own secret. We can still communicate over this public podcast uh, and communicate with each other, but no information would be leaked to anyone else. So this sort of a, a, a change happened uh, in 1976 with this sort of this really amazing you know, concept idea. Unfortunately, they didn't know how to realize it, but it was soon, they, they said it would be interesting, you know, they laid forth the foundations for this notion, but they couldn't give constructions or, or methods to realize it. Soon after it was realized by RSA that we're all familiar with, by Rivest Ramir Edelman in, in 78, and the notion, the high bar of what what we should expect from a uh, from an encryption scheme was defined in 1982 by a work by Goldwasser and Macaulay. And all three works ended up winning the, the tuning award. So that was uh, quite uh, fascinating. So by the way, I have to say this. Uh, if you're talking about going back in history, then um, the early ciphers actually date back uh, to, there's a cipher called Caesar cipher. I mean, obviously it's, it's oh. known to be insecure. And these are, uh, th these come from the time of uh, Julius Caesar. So this is really far back. I'm guessing this was before Christ. So this is, yeah, it looks like yes, definitely. So this is this, this is crazy. So yeah, so we've been using encryption for a long, long time. You know, keeping our conversations private from from other people is is, is really paramount. And I think that you know this is becoming really important. I you know, if someone today, I do not know any single person who is not using encryption at least. I shouldn't say every single hour of their life, but certainly every single day, because everybody who's using WhatsApp or, or, or any of those apps like that, they are using pretty sophisticated versions of public key encryption all the time with every single message that's being sent. So, you know, something I think that uh, uh, is, is quite relevant and people might, uh, uh, you know, this is sort of an exciting aspect is um, often people wonder, well, you know, I just mentioned Caesar cipher, right? And in, in, before Christ, and there was ended up, we know it's broken now. You know, a big achievement of cryptography over the last uh, few decades has been that, you know, you may wonder, well, I'm using encryption. What if it gets, ends up getting broken? A big achievement in cryptography has been that it's no longer a sort of a, these are not ad hoc uh, systems that people have come up with. There's a very well-defined science for building these encryption methods. And we understand why they work. We have evidence why they work. And the security is not based on the fact that other people don't know how they work. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We all know how they work. Everybody knows what how they work. And yet, mathematicians over the last 50 years uh, believe that these things are going to be hard to crack. 
uh, and there's sort of substantial evidence towards that. So I think that that's sort of something uh, uh, very useful for everyday users of encryption to realize that the technology they're they're using is not uh, ad hoc. It's very principle, um, you know, sort of based on very well understood science. Uh, people, you know, it's sort of hard sometimes for people to grasp it. So I, I was looking somewhere and they had this really good analogy, and I'll try to give that. My numbers will be off, but, but I'll try to. So if you're using private key encryption that we talked about before, you probably end up using AES and, and maybe AES-256 um, uh, is, is what's recommended now. So AES is what's called the Advanced Encryption Standard. And how it came about was that researchers developed a bunch of encryption schemes, and then there's a competition that's held to figure out which among them is the best, the most efficient, and also where its uh, security is tested by all the other researchers, right? So uh, various researchers would submit their encryption method. Then all the methods would be made public and people would get to test each other's encryption methods. And ultimately the winner of the encryption of this contest, and this contest goes over uh, a couple of years, uh, comes out to be what becomes the encryption standard and then everybody starts using that. So one really popular standard right now that's been implemented in, in Intel chipset, which makes it super duper fast to use, is what's the advanced encryption standard. And it's super fast and the, it's quite ubiquitous now. So everybody's using it. And this offers a private key encryption. And if you wanted to use public key encryption, there are also standards for that. A variety of those ones, for example, RSA I talked about a bit. That's a public key encryption scheme that exists out there. So these are, to give you just some perspective on how secure we expect them to be. So the best known attacks on these systems, you know, would require computational resources and times that are just out of this world. So imagine the total computational resources that Google has and, you know, maybe make them a hundred times. And let me call that like a mini Google. Give everybody on earth access to a mini Google, okay? And think about our entire galaxy. Imagine every galaxy had, you know, every solar system in our galaxy had access to one earth-like planet. Put the computational resources of all the people on all these galaxies together and use those resources for the lifetime of the universe. And that still will not be enough to break these encryption systems. That's the level, and, and I'm still undercounting here. And, and so that's the level of security these systems uh, offer. So this is quite tremendous. Of course, this is based on our current understanding of best known attacks, but you know, there's, there's always a buffer in that, that, that people place in terms of that as well. So this is quite remarkable. That is truly mind-boggling, you know. By the way, I was saying specifically for AES-256, but you can set RSA prime factorization to achieve similar security. Uh, just AES-256 out of the box offers that security. You know, I, would, I must admit, I haven't gone too deep into like all this debate or the current kind of fuss about... Uh, you know, uh, quantum computers being able to crack. And some people say, oh, you know what? NSA has a quantum computer and watch out and it's coming in five year, 10 year, that sort of a thing. I briefly listened to your talk on this topic. I would like to 
you know, have you or talk a little bit about that, uh, what your thoughts around that, and also some of the efforts that are building like quantum resistant encryption technique? Uh, I think that, there, that, that one has to be careful in trying to, you know, the state of the art, we make people making significant progress in trying to build quantum computers. And I hope we'll have them. It's hard to predict. And, and, I, and, and, and I've talked with people who are actually, who are real experts in, in the field as well. I think it's, it's, it's a hard prediction to make. And one has to understand that there's a big difference between having a quantum computer, even let's say we're able to build a quantum computer. There's a big difference between having a quantum computer versus having a quantum computer that's good enough to break these encryption schemes. So there's a big gap um, in that happening. That said, you know, even if quantum computers were to exist, we have built encryption systems by now, which will be resilient even if quantum computers were to exist. So we can have quantum computers where you could encrypt uh, using just classical systems. So you don't have to have a big, crazy quantum computer to do the encryption or decryption. You can keep using your cell phone and you could encrypt using your cell phone and then decrypt using your cell phone. And the security guarantee will hold even if, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, someone did come across and built a quantum computer that was good enough to break RSA, for example. Just to note, we don't know any, this doesn't change the situation with respect to AES. We don't know any attacks against that, the advanced encryption standard that I talked about. It does affect the factoring-based schemes such as RSA. So you could just replace them with these uh, newer schemes, and that would uh, allow you to get security against uh, quantum computers. I should note here that there's a, a competition by NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards in, in the U.S., that's currently holding a competition for deciding which of these there are several candidates or which are believed to be resilient against quantum computers. And there's a competition going on trying to figure out which one should become the standard. Once the competition uh, completes, we will have a standard out and you could very well start using that in your communication with others. And that, that will be reasonable. One should keep in mind that it is possible that, let's say you have quantum computers that are able to break stuff. 30 years, 40 years down the line, it could potentially make things that you're doing right now insecure if they had access to a copy of your... So let's say you encrypted something and gave it to me and somebody held on to a copy of that communication, then they might be able to break that. That's something that you might... That, that, that could be a reasonable worry if you're worried about 40, 50 years in the future about your data that you're generating right now. But I don't think... Uh, there's much worry beyond that right now. There is a little bit of worry in the sense that it's not as easy to pull the plug. So you can't just pull the plug and switch quickly. There is a five to 10 year period where we need to set up, you know, these things need to be implemented then they need to be updated. And then, you know, updated versions of all operating systems need to come with these things. So it takes a, a bit of a time so that this becomes ubiquitous, these new implementations. So we do need like a, a five to 10 year period where, you know, we can distribute all this code to all the computers in the world. But I'm optimistic that, you know, cryptographers will be able to ship this sooner than uh, quantum computers get built. Conversations with Sanjum will continue in episode two. Also check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
support us on Patreon so that we keep making more quality content.